Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. This is a new type of episode I'm trying out. Due to popular demand on Twitter, I'm going to call it a hybrid episode. In it, I go over news and a topic with someone who's doing interesting things in quantum computing. Let me know what you think. Anisha Musty is a high school student working on quantum computing, specifically focusing on educating other high school students about quantum. We talked about her work with Community and the news surrounding Alpha Zero for quantum, quantum impact, TensorFlow quantum, and hot qubits. Here's the interview slash just sort of chatting about the news slash me learning a bit about quantum machine learning. So I'm here with Anisha Musty, who is a high schooler who's interested in quantum computing. Um, that's super cool. Uh, Anisha, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And we're going to do something a little bit different. So in previous interview episodes, we've done just an interview where I talk about the person's background, what they're working on, get a little bit of insight from them. But after the Twitter poll that I heard from everyone, I found out that everyone really liked the idea of me doing an interview as well as talking with the people who come on the episode a little bit about um, what's going on in the news, maybe some topics. So we're actually going to jump into all of that after the interview. Um, It'll probably be a shortened interview as compared to the other ones, but we'll still cover some good stuff. So yeah, um, Anisha, if you could just, before we jump into like the, the deep stuff with community and what you're working on there, could you give us some background of like, how did you get interested in quantum computing so early? Yeah, so I've been doing quantum computing for a little bit less than a year now. And the way I got into it was I joined this STEM emerging technology program. And the way it works is they make everyone pick a technology of specialty. So most of my friends jumped into AI, but I was like, no, I want to be special. I want to stand out. So I chose quantum computing, obviously. It just sounded the coolest. And I was like hoping that I'd like it. And luckily I did. I looked into it. And after I heard about superposition and entanglement, I was pretty much sold. And from then on, I did my own research. I found whatever tutorials I could find on YouTube. And I pretty much just learned as much as I could about the technology. And I tried to make my own projects within the field. Super cool. What was that, that, um, that program called exactly? The, yeah. So it's called the Knowledge Society. It's a teenage incubator program, kind of like Y Combinator, but for teens. And the goal is to create unicorn teenagers, like unicorn companies, but children. Okay. Yeah. So unicorn teenagers, like people who can do it all or who are, you know, different in that they know exactly what they want to do. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. It's creating the next generation of CEOs and game changers, people who are going to impact the world. It's quite ambitious, as you can probably tell. Like pretty yeah. much everyone there is like really intense, and but we all have big ambitions and we're working together to get there. That's super cool. Yeah. So was Community um, founded as a part of that or was that a side project that you worked on just completely on your own? So Community, it's actually a really funny story how we started it. So a couple of my friends in the program as well, we all did quantum computing together. And since there were so few of us, mostly everyone did AI. And there were a couple of us, I think there were four. And we all decided, hey, let's go to this conference that IBM is hosting. We'll skip school that day. Just go to the conference. And we did. The four of us went. And I saw this guy 
he was actually from a TED talk that I'd watched. And I was like, guys, come on, we have to go talk to him. And they were all like, I don't know, I don't know. And I was like, yes, come on. And we all, like the four of us just like approached this dude. And he was like taken aback for a second, but we introduced ourselves, told him about how much we love the technology. And he works at IBM. And he introduced us to a couple of people. And eventually he introduced us to a person who works in education at IBM. And he'd said, so far at IBM, we've really been working with college students. But after talking with you, I realized that high school is an area we want to expand into. And from there, we actually worked on a hackathon with IBM. They sponsored it and everything was really, really cool. Yeah, Yeah, but it got canceled because of coronavirus. But my friends and I decided, you know what? we care too much about quantum computing and we care too much about spreading it. So we want to take this initiative that started with a hackathon and we want to make it bigger. We want to make sure that everyone anywhere can have access to the technology, not just in one hackathon, but in a variety of different ways. And that's what community is. It's an organization that provides accessible, an easy, accessible way to get quantum computing to anyone anywhere. Okay, interesting. And you say anyone, anywhere, but you're mostly focused on high school students, right? Yeah, mostly focused on high school students for a lot of our technologies because a lot of our events, because we realize that there are resources for older graduate students, even undergrad, but like Kiskit Camp, for example, but high school students is really an untapped market. And a lot of our programs are open to people of all ages as well, but we really try to make sure that high school students are included and there's places for them specifically to be targeted. Okay. And do you still have those ties with IBM um, from your founding or are you more on your own looking for other people to partner with? Yeah, of course. We definitely still have ties and relationships with the people that we worked with at IBM. Actually today, they just transferred the domain because they bought it for us. They transferred the domain over to us. But Yeah, but mostly we're trying to build it on our own because IBM can't sponsor everything. As much as we like them to, they can't. But yeah, we definitely want to redo the hackathon as soon as all of the COVID-19 stuff is over and it's safe to go outside again. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be awesome. And since we've done all this stuff with COVID, people sort of getting used to doing remote. Do you think you'll offer maybe a dual, like you can come in person or you can do it remote? Oh, for sure. Especially because we started, I'm based in New York. We started just like in the New York tri-state area, but now we're getting emails from people in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, India, Germany, Australia. And now that we've started with this online community that spans across so many different countries, I just feel like it would be unfair to leave them out in the future. So we definitely want to continue doing some online events just so we can bring all of those people together and share those ideas. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, for one, love how, like, global the quantum computing community is. Like, you get to know people from all walks of life, all, of, like, different countries all over the world. I definitely think that's cool. Definitely, and I know yeah. Your, one of your your big things coming up is the Cubes Camp. How, how do you pronounce that? Cubes Camp, yeah, exactly like okay. that. Yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what that is, um, or maybe a lot, I, up to you. <laughs> Cubes Camp is pretty much a quantum beginner's camp. It's four hours a day for two weeks, and it's mostly high school students and early university students. And the way that it is, is just pretty much we start at the basics. We teach, we assume they know nothing more than knowing how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And from there, we teach them all the way up to coding their own quantum algorithm, a unique one, actually. And we're working from professors from Dartmouth, postdocs from UC Berkeley, and 
MIT alumni. It's really, really cool. And if anyone is looking for an introduction to quantum computing, I would highly recommend it. The curriculum is amazing. Yeah, nice. Uh, is that curriculum on your website? Uh, no, it's not. We haven't actually published it. But okay. I mean, if that's something that the public wants, we're more than willing to. It's it's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I guess if you're listening to this and you're interested in having that curriculum out there, go ahead and tweet at us at one Ethan Hansen and at what's your Twitter handle? Anisha Musty, just my first and last name. Okay. At Anisha Musty. Um, I think probably the best way to reach both of us. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so you said it's four hours a day for two weeks? Yep, four hours a day for two weeks, and we have an extra hour for office hours. It's really not that hard of a commitment, but you get so much out of it that it's just, I wish I could take it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, Is there any sort of cost? Is it free? Is it online? What are the details surrounding that? So it's $200.00. But we de- we have a lot of aid money because we're a nonprofit after all. So we really try to make our our mission is accessibility. And we realize that if we made it more expensive, that's not possible. And even at $200, some people can't afford it. Like I've been getting emails from people in other countries that are like the difference in currency makes it really hard. And we definitely oh, want right. those people to still have access. So we have a lot of aid funds that we're more than willing to give out. Nice. Yeah. And so it will be online? Yes, it's online. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I guess that's really all the questions I had for CubesCamp. The The three that I always wrap up with are starting off with, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenge in quantum computing right now? In quantum computing, I think the biggest challenge, to be honest, and this might just be my biased opinion from working with something as community, but is getting the big enough or big enough workforce for the next generation it's especially just looking at high schools, high schoolers. I just realized that so many people don't know what it is and think it's way too hard to even enter. And yeah. I think anything in the field becomes easier when you have so many brilliant minds working together to solve it. And I don't think there's like one specific problem that is that many. I'm, I'm sure there is, but there's no one specific problem that is more important than just getting the people to be able to solve it. So if we can get all of these people from different walks of life to come together and to solve these problems in quantum computing and quantum physics, then I think we're going to be a lot better off. But it's a matter of making those people try to enter this field a lot earlier and not waiting until they're like in the middle of undergrad or like in the middle of university. Yeah, I definitely get that. Like uh, a lot of times when I tell people that I'm interested in quantum computing, I either get the uh, Ant-Man reaction gift. That's, do you guys just put quantum in front of everything? <laughs> yeah. Or, um, I love or, that gift. Uh, me too. I use it I use it myself quite often. Um, or alternatively, I get uh, quantum and computing. Can you explain like I'm five? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Same. And especially I just like tell my science teachers and they're like, are you sure? Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's definitely awesome to emphasize the fact that pretty much anyone can learn about this, right? You've got quantum computing for babies all the way up through postdoc positions. Exactly. Of course. And I think especially the computing and the software part is a lot easier to enter. I think a lot of people get it confused with quantum physics, which you may need like heavy linear algebra, or you may need some physics background, but- if you just want to do some basic computing work, like which is what I'm doing right now, because I'm definitely not a math expert or a physics expert, I think, but I can still play around and kiss it and make my own algorithms. And I think that's more than possible. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next question is, what do you see as the biggest promise? Or the biggest, um, something that is going to change the world the most coming out of quantum computing? I think there, I think that there's a lot of game changing stuff in quantum computing, but something that I think is really big is quantum machine learning, especially because we all know the applications of AI and how much they're going to change the world. But the problem with a lot of these AI pro issues is that the data sets are just too big to run on regular classical systems. And when you have it with a quantum computer, you're able to increase that processing capability so much. So you're putting AI on steroids. And obviously we know how much that can do on its own, but then with quantum computing, it's just so much bigger. Yeah, for sure. And actually that's a perfect segue. We wanna start talking about quantum machine learning right now. Um, I know you have a video on YouTube about this. Um, if people are interested, they can uh, find that info in the show notes. Um, but yeah, if you want to give us an overview about quantum machine learning, um, sort of what you know about it, and I can talk about what I know about it, and we can compare notes. So yeah, I just mentioned a little bit about what I know already, but it's basically you're taking a classical machine learning algorithm and you're turning it into a quantum circuit so it can that, that it can be run on a, efficiently on a quantum computer. So it's a mix of both machine learning and quantum computing. It's honestly a really great in-between because you have to know a little bit of both, but you're pretty much just taking a machine learning algorithm and making it quantum and running it on a quantum computer, which is why it gets past that initial barrier because a lot of these machine learning algorithms are too heavy for classical computers and their CPUs. So you're pretty much, as I just said, you're putting it on steroids. Hmm. Okay. And so the, from what I know, um, the the algorithm that you talked about specifically um, in that video was a quantum support vector machine. Um, yeah. And it sounds like, okay, so a normal support vector machine is uh, you've got a series of data, like an X and a Y, and yeah. you're trying to find the line between that. Mm -hmm. um, how do you separate the X from the Y? Um, and what they can do as a, as a trick, it's called the kernel trick, um, is you take that and you bring it into a higher dimension, which gives you more variability in your data and it's easier to find that line. But then the issue is it's harder for classical computers to work in those higher dimensions. Um, and the quantum computers have less of a problem with that. Um, is that right? Like. Does that sound like yep, I'm on the right track? That's exactly right, actually. The analogy that I used, I like to use is it, imagine like sticking two stickers on top of each other and trying to separate them. It's not possible. But when you slide it up and you into a higher dimension, it's possible to slip something in between. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And then the kernel trick is what projects it into the higher dimension. So an SVM basically takes what a normal machine learning algorithm would try to solve in 2D, but it takes it into a 3D dimension. Okay, yeah. And you can do that, uh, probably 3D isn't that hard, but once you get into, you've got a bunch of different parameters that you're yes. plugging into this. You're... Yeah, it doesn't stop with 3D. Like there's a lot, you can go a lot more dimensions than that. But the problem is that on classical computers, it's a lot harder to do that. And quantum computers step in there and help us out. Yeah. Okay, so um, what sort of speed up do you get? Or um, 
reduction, I guess, in complexity when you're using a quantum support vector machine as compared to a standard support vector machine? Um, I'm not sure of the exact number speed up, like 15 times or whatever, but I know okay. that, and I'm not sure exactly. I don't think right now that it's that much bigger of a speed up either. I think that we need a lot more error correction and we need like faster simulators and stuff like that to actually get to the full potential of how much it can change. But typically on quantum computers, you can run the algorithm faster, but the data sets can't be that much bigger because even quantum computers still have like limiting capabilities because we can't use that many qubits and you need a certain you need a you need every one qubit for every number of features that you have so you can't go to that many features either because you can't keep all of those qubits in one circuit okay yeah so i know you you have an example of this uh with was it a parkinson's data set yes so i took a Parkinson's data set that basically looks at people's voices and classifies them into, do you have Parkinson's, do you not? And I ran a quantum support vector machine on it to identify whether or not a, pa- a given group of nine patients had it or didn't. That's super cool. Um, and yeah, I'll have the link to that in the show notes. But it, can you give an overview of what that looks like? Um, what framework did you use? Um, what language was it written in? That sort of stuff? Yeah, so... I know there are a lot of different libraries to code in quantum computing and code with machine learning, but the way I did it was I just wrote, I combined a couple of different libraries. So I used NumPy, I used Scikit, I used, and I used Qiskit, and I combined all of them. And basically I just coded parts of it in regular, in machine learning, and then I coded the rest of it in Qiskit. And I combined it, and basically it just goes initializing the data set, importing it, putting some features in it to separate it into training, testing data, adding the quantum parts to it, setting up the circuit, adding the right amount of qubits, and then I ran it. There's some extra steps I'm probably forgetting, but that's pretty much how it goes really simply. Yeah. Okay, so hold on. You said numpy. I say numpy. Am I pronouncing it wrong? You honestly might be pronouncing it right. I genuinely don't know. (laughs) I mean, I just read it, and it yeah, looks like numpy. I've, I've never heard it pronounced before, so if someone online could comment and let us know, uh, I, I don't want to be saying numpy if it's actually numpy. I, yeah, I don't, same. <laughs> that actually, okay. yeah, I really want to know now. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, okay, so I just looked at the... Uh, I don't know if this is the original paper. It's a it's an archive paper from July 10th, 2014. And in their uh, abstract, it says that in cases when classical sampling algor- algorithms required polynomial time, an exponential speed up is obtained. Um, so that's that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, pretty good. The... <laughs> it, like... It's definitely a lot faster. Oh, yeah. Um. But that's, it's insane that it's a exponential speed up. Um, yeah. That is, that that's something like, I don't know. If, the, you know, the uh, Google quantum supremacy experiment, that was definitely an exponential speed up. I wonder if that was you know, orders of magnitude higher than this, or if at some point we'll see a quantum support vector machine 
like on a you know a more error corrected quantum computer, uh, more qubits, etc., that can just outclass classical computers like within our lifetime. What do you think about that? I think it's definitely possible. Also, considering that you can already run algorithms on quantum support, you can already run quantum support vector machines with a pretty good accuracy rate. Mm-hmm. I think in the next couple of decades, maybe by the time I'm an adult, <laughs> like pretty old <laughs> out of grad school, I think it's definitely possible. Maybe longer than that. Not exactly sure. But yeah, yeah I think it's definitely possible. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, do you have any experience in other sections of quantum machine learning? I know there's like parameterized uh, quantum circuits where they essentially use the qubit like parameters as weights almost. Um, But I don't know enough about that to comment on it. (laughs) Yeah. Neither do I, to be honest. I'm, I pretty much, I've done a couple algorithms in quantum support vector machines and that's pretty much I guess my specialty and my, the Parkinson's algorithm was by far my biggest project everything else was like oh cool you classified a cat and a dog good for you but uh yeah that's pretty much my specialty but I've read about some of these things and I know that there are so many more applications of this type of stuff and I definitely want to expand into that in the future yeah definitely we'll have to bring you back on uh once you learned a bit more and you've got some more to share with the audience yeah of course i'm gonna go learn i'm gonna go learn about those parametricized circuits and i'll be right back all right okay so if we want to jump into the news um the first thing we were going to talk about was alpha zero for quantum computing um just i guess as a disclaimer to the audience this is going to be a machine learning heavy episode. So if that's what you're into, definitely stick around. Um, but yeah, so Alpha Zero, it's from what I understand, there was a paper that came out pretty recently where researchers used Alpha Zero, which is, yeah, it's the same Alpha Zero that plays Go, um, plays, uh, it wasn't Dota. I think it was chess. Yeah, Go, chess. Um, it was a, it was a video game. Um, yeah, was it, was it Dota? I don't remember. I I don't remember. I remember Go and Chess. Yeah. But anyways, it plays it, it outclasses every other, like, machine learning algorithm out there, um, because it plays against itself and learns over time with reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, it's, it's quite possibly one of the most general algorithms we have out there. Basically, they apply it to a bunch of different things and it keeps on working. Um, and then they applied it to optimizing a quantum circuit or a quantum control scheme. Um, yeah, so I guess, Anisha, what do you what do you know about this? So the alpha zero algorithm is in machine learning, it's called a reinforcement learning algorithm. So machine learning has three sectors classified, um, supervised, unsupervised, and reinforcement learning. And mm-hmm. when we think of like artificial intelligence or like the Algor- the AI algorithm that takes over the world, we're pretty much thinking of a reinforcement learning algorithm. It's the kind of technology that learns from itself. So it makes mistakes and it knows that if it goes down that path again, it's going to make the same mistake. So it strays away and it eventually it just keeps failing and failing and trying and trying until it finds the right way to do things. And because of that, and because of that, because it's a computer and it has like a really good memory 
of what patterns do what and the underlying symmetries beneath each problem, it learns a lot quicker and retains information a lot quicker than and better than a human can, which is why when Alpha Zero came out, it beat the best chess player in the world and it beat the best online algorithm for chess in like a matter of weeks, I'm pretty sure. Hmm. Crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then they also, yeah, this, so AlphaGo was the original, right? Uh, it beat Lisa Dole at Go, and then they sort of revamped it into AlphaZero to make it more general. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so the, the tie into quantum computing, um, it was, yeah, so I'm, I've got this article from uh, fizz.org that I will have in the show notes. Um, but yeah, essentially, the research group ran computer simulations that, uh, so, sorry, three different control problems that could each potentially be used on a quantum computer. Um, when we analyzed the data from AlphaZero, we saw that the algorithm had learned to exploit an underlying symmetry of the problem that we did not originally consider. That was an amazing experience. That's something that I think is really cool with machine learning when it like surprises the people that created the algorithm. Um, yeah. uh, like one of my favorite examples is this video from Two Minute Papers um, that shows this. Uh, th- they told this machine learning algorithm. They gave it a physics simulation and like a, a simulated robot body and told it to walk as far as it could. So it learned to walk, and then they said, okay walk as far as you can without using your middle leg um, or letting your middle foot touch the floor. So it learned to do it without that middle leg. Um, and then they told it, okay, try to make it as far as you can without touching any of your feet to the floor beyond this line. And they thought it would learn to like jump, you know, run up to the line and jump as far as it could. Um, but no, it flipped itself over and crawled like with its elbows upside down. And they just weren't expecting that. And that's what it sounds like Alpha Zero did in this case with the quantum computing, um, the, the problem that they were trying to do. And I guess yeah. what I want to understand is what exactly was the problem? Um, one, one of the things I know is it, they only did it on a couple qubits, um, but their results were impressive enough that they've been reached out to by a couple different places to collaborate on further work. Um, I, I say a couple places like large um, companies. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I guess, do you have any insight into what the problem that they were trying to solve was? Um, I'm not ex- I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure in the study that I read that it was a clustering problem. So it was looking at different ways to group data and okay. the algorithm found a completely new way of clustering. So the researchers were, so for example, like let's say it was clustering like pink, blue, and purple dots. The mm-hmm. algorithm classified it by like the shape of the dots. Oh, interesting. And it's something that the humans didn't even notice. They weren't like, this is not what we're even looking for, but the algorithm, that's what it found. And I think that's like the coolest part is just when it, you're, like what, how you said about the robot like learning how to walk without any of its legs. It just yeah. sees things that humans would never even have thought of because it doesn't think the same way we do. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to to uh, take this on a bit of a tangent, but like, do you think that 
there's going to be a point where we're going to reach um, artificial general intelligence uh, and it'll just surpass us to artificial super intelligence in like a day. So by artificial general intelligence, do you mean a point where like, what do you exactly do you mean by that? Like when humans become obsolete and artificial intelligence can pretty much will do whatever? Yeah, when when artificial intelligence can um, learn enough that it can do basically any task that a human can do um, and then learn as it does that and improve itself over time. Yeah, actually, I think that something really important about that is that I don't think that's necessarily a future. I think there's definitely a future in which automation is like real and uh, automation is already real, but to an extent where it takes over a lot of jobs. But I think it's still necessary for humans to be there because every algorithm, every AI, every like machine learning algorithm, they have strengths and weaknesses. For example, they can't differ between what is like the most optimal way of doing something. For example, that robot, like sitting down and like using its elbows is not the optimal way of moving. Like you probably think jumping is the better way to do it. And it probably is in terms of efficiency and just general cost, but the algorithm doesn't know that. And I think that's where humans come in where they do that fine tweaking. So I don't think there's ever a point, well, at least from what I can see, I don't think there's necessarily a point where like humans become obsolete or like AI just like takes over the need for the human brain. And there's like no, absolutely no reason that a human needs to do anything. I just think it's a matter of like humans role in the whole situation is just going to change. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get that. Um, I think I would agree. And it is definitely interesting. Um, I read a while back, so I don't know if this has changed. Probably has with Alpha Zero, but it used to be that um, they the best chess algorithms in the world could beat the best human players in the world, like almost 100% of the time. Um, and what they did is they they matched up humans versus machines, and the machines won. Um, but then they matched up like a human and a machine. Um, so the, it was like a human assisted chess match, or sorry, a computer assisted chess match, human versus human. And the human plus machine beat both other humans and just machines by themselves almost all the time. So I guess that makes sense. Um, if we can work with machine learning algorithms, we'll be much better equipped than trying to do it all one way or all the other way. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, all the machine learning algorithm really does is just find a solution to the problem, but it might not be the best one. And that's where humans come in to just make those adjustments. And yeah, that's pretty much what they do. I think even the alpha zero study at the bottom, I think the physicists were like, this points to a future where off the shelf AI algorithms don't just take over, but it points to a future in which physicists like us can identify strengths and weaknesses and tweak them and make them even better. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I've got the, I've pulled up the paper right here. It says, um, this conclusion is for, yeah. Um, Nonetheless, because the deep exploration technology is by design agnostic to expert knowledge, it is most powerful when combined with specialized knowledge about locally exploiting promising seeds, leveraging the vast body of literature about local quantum optimization. Yeah, which I think is really cool because what what they're saying there is this algorithm was not restricted like other algorithms are saying 
the the vast majority of research in the area says that the best solution is probably going to be in this general area. Um, and so other algorithms will look inside of that area. This was looking at the whole thing. And so maybe it wasn't looking at every needle in the haystack with a fine tooth comb. Um, but if it finds like the promising, most promising little piles of hay, then humans can go through and look um, for the needles inside of those. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good analogy. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so the next thing we were going to talk about is Microsoft Quantum Impact. So uh, this was a video series. Um, I guess still is a video series. I haven't heard that it was canceled, but they also haven't released anything since February. So uh, not it's quite a great. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so episode zero came out a while ago. And then episode two, I'm not sure what happened to episode one, but episode two came out in February. And this is uh, Microsoft going through and talking about their approach to quantum computing. Um, the, and I guess their, their goal is to talk to people who are actually working with Microsoft Quantum to solve real problems. And I get that's, that's super cool. Good on them. Um, but I guess a certain line from episode zero that I want to nitpick real fast with you is uh, they said, with qubits, every time we add a qubit to the quantum computer, the amount of information we can compute with doubles. And so the processing power grows exponentially. Uh, give me give me your first your first takes on that. I think it's just really general. And there's just so much more than just adding a qubit and doubling computing power. Like, what kind of qubit are you adding? And what kind of surroundings are what kind of environment are you adding it what kind of algorithm are you running it on stuff like that it's just it's really general and doesn't really tell you much besides like the algorithm where it's like oh yeah for every computes like two to the n power mm -hmm. yeah and I, I totally get that um and you'll find that especially with like superconducting qubits or trapped ion um, machines where you've got to deal with noise but like microsoft is trying to work on topological qubits and so I guess if they if they do reach that point where they have well, perfectly error corrected topological qubits, then I think that might be a, a fair thing to say. What do you think? I think that's definitely possible that they could say that. I just think it's like they have to get to the point where they can get perfectly error corrected, corrected topological qubits. I personally don't know how far they are from that, but that's definitely, I think in my opinion, it's just like a little while away because I think... That entire series, from what I've seen, I haven't, disclaimer, I haven't watched every episode of it, but from what I've seen, it's kind of more of like a, not really teaching you what is quantum computing, but kind of getting the public hype about it, which is definitely something that we need. But I, I watched a couple episodes and I just realized like the production's really cool. All the cinematics are really, really nice. And it builds a lot of like, this is cool type stuff. But when you really look into it, and I think I, I read some comments saying this too, is just like, we didn't learn that much. It's kind of just like building the hype around quantum computing and like the potential applications. Yeah, I would agree. I think they're they're building a lot of hype and I guess I'm I'm concerned if that hype doesn't come through. One of the things I, I'll talk about on the show with people that come on quite quite often it seems like is the quantum computing hype bubble. Whether people think that there is one, whether they think it's about to burst. Is what what's your take on that? I think the thing about quantum computing is that there is a lot of potential applications that are 
like groundbreaking and completely disrupting. Like for example, Shor's algorithm, like quantum machine learning, all of those things, but they're not that close. So I think when we hype it up a lot, like this is, this is here, this is now, this is quantum computing. People don't realize that it's quite a while away. And in order to get that, you need to do like a lot of research. You need to do a lot of error correction. You need to do a lot more work in the field. And I just don't think, I think some people expect to see it a lot sooner because we're hyping it up so much. And some of this, I think it's everything that people are hyping up is definitely possible at some point. It's just like, how much are we going to make people hang on if we're hyping it up this much this early and we're not telling them the state of where we're actually at right now? Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a good idea to get a clear picture of like where we're at, right? Yeah. Shor's algorithm, if we want to crack RSA, I think the the smallest number of qubits that you would need to crack um, RSA with Shor's algorithm is 2n plus 3. And so this, the standard RSA encryption we use is 2048 bits. So 2n is 4096 bits plus 3, so 4,099 uh, 4, bits, right? And those have to be error corrected, like perfectly error corrected logical qubits. And right now we have max, what, um, 72 qubits? Yeah, 72, something uh, like that. And it's just like... The public just thinks it's like, I, like nothing against them, but like nothing against like Microsoft, but I just think that there's a lot more hype than there is actual delivery in that yeah. particular series. And I think it's important that we're being honest about this is where we are, but this is where we could be not just highlighting where we could be. I totally agree. And like, I would be super like stoked, ecstatic through the roof over the moon if Microsoft came out tomorrow, they were like, yep, we've got it. 100% topological qubits um, and it would be such a great you know push forward for the quantum computing community but like we haven't seen anything out of them they've been really quiet as compared to other places that are trying to like tout their their stuff other than their language Q sharp which is like it's cool if you can have something it actually runs on but there's sort of this promise of it'll run on Microsoft hardware at some point but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then an another line they said is quantum solutions that run on classical hardware. And so that's, that's quantum-inspired algorithms, um, sometimes called quantum-inspired optimization algorithms. And I think that that's, that's interesting because you hear about, like, we get this speed up because of superposition and entanglement, but obviously you don't have that if you're running your quantum algorithm on a classical machine. So at that point, is it even is it even fair to call it quantum? Honestly, I don't think so. I think the whole point of like a quantum computer is being able to run it on a quantum machine because otherwise you don't get the quantum effects that really make it groundbreaking. Like you don't have the ability to put a qubit in superposition. You don't have the ability to entangle two qubits. And Again, I think this kind of ties back into the general picture is like Microsoft is building hype, but it's like not necessarily what it actually is. Like, I think it's definitely cool. And it's definitely like you can take inspiration from these quantum algorithms to make a classical algorithm. It's just not a quantum algorithm. Yeah, like, right. Like if it's if it's an algorithm that does better, like that's super cool as is. It's, it's cool if it does 
the what the classical algorithm can do but better but it's still a classical algorithm and you'll get more speed up if you can run on a, a quantum machine but until then maybe quantum inspired is just adding to the hype yeah definitely i think quantum inspired is the right word not quantum yeah yeah um okay so the next thing going back over to some more machine learning um, we're going to talk about tensorflow quantum so google has released their tensorflow quantum library which is supposed to allow for um, classical quantum hybrid algorithms directly inside of tensorflow so that you can do quantum machine learning without having to use uh, you know extra packages like you were talking about having to use numpy and scipy with qiskit um, having exactly. to keep all those dependencies up to date it sounds like tensorflow quantum is just a sort of a a one-stop shop, if you will, for all of this. Um, tell me, tell me what's going on there. So I love it. Um, I haven't really coded in it that much, but like the idea of it and like what from what I've heard about it, it's definitely a step in the right direction in regards to quantum machine learning. I think I read a study once that says TensorFlow Quantum like increases the computational rate like versus like when you're combining all the libraries by like 15 times, which is crazy oh. to me. And I wish I coded my algorithm in TensorFlow Quantum. <laughs> And I think it's also a step in like, we are already making progress in this field. And it's a, like, it's kind of like a stepping stone, even if it doesn't do much than like change the computational speed a little bit, but it's a stepping stone in like making a solid combination of quantum machine learning and quantum, quantum computing and machine learning. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so if looking at the TensorFlow website or the TensorFlow quantum website, if you um, they say TensorFlow Quantum focuses on quantum data and building hybrid quantum classical models. It integrates quantum computing algorithms and logic designed in CERC and provides quantum computing primitives compatible with existing TensorFlow APIs, along with high-performance quantum circuit simulators. Read more in the quantum TensorFlow white paper. So I think that's really interesting that they're talking about having these quantum computing primitives. Um, and like if, for people who don't know or aren't that familiar with software, a primitive is like a, a basic data type. So it's built into the language, um, which I think is it's pretty cool that they're, it, it sounds like what they're trying to do is add a layer of abstraction over both the machine learning side and the quantum computing side. Yeah, for sure. I think the idea of it is really cool. And I think the effectiveness is also really important. Um, the actual like library itself, like despite its speed up, I think it still has like a little bit of way room to grow. And I'm sure they're not done with it. But they're just like some basic stuff that like I've noticed. And I've like read some reviews that are just like, simple things like you can't you have to rebuild the entire circuit if you want to run it on a real on real hardware versus if you want to run it on a simulator. And wow. yeah, and there's like a bunch of new things because it's combining, I'm pretty sure it's combining TensorFlow and Circ, but there's a bunch of new like gates, there's not gates, but there's a bunch of new like parts of the library that don't exist in either Circ or TensorFlow, which makes it okay. a lot more difficult for someone coming from like a TensorFlow background or like a Circ background. Even if you're coming from both, you still a little bit of a jumping point and a learning curve. Yeah, definitely. I think... That'll probably change over time as it's a, you know, it's an open source library and the TensorFlow is, you know, has a, a bunch of contributors. 
Um, yeah. And I'm sure that TensorFlow Quantum will pull some of those over and pull some people in from Quantum, and we'll see that improve over time. Um, but yeah, it, from what it sounds like right now, it's mostly if you want to be on the the cutting edge, the trying out something new. I, I guess what I'm what I'm the the sense that I get, sorry, is that a lot of this is sort of a gamble, right? You've got to you've got to pick a company and you've got to or you've got to pick a platform. You've got to hope that they, you know, I do well or are the best um, without really knowing. Like we don't really know for sure where this is going to go. What what's your take on that? I definitely agree with that. Like, for example, you can code in Qiskit, you can code in QSharp, you can code in Circ, you can code in like Forest SDK from Rigetti. There's just so many options. And some of these players more than others are a lot more quiet about what they're doing and where they're headed. And you don't really know what they've done until they come out and say, hey, look, it's TensorFlow Quantum. So like, and it's definitely hard because they're all very different in nature, even though they're at the essence of it, just using the same quantum properties, they're all so different and you don't know which one is going to be like the algorithm or like the coding library. And it's kind of just like a little bit of a gamble for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Okay, um, last real news story is hot qubits. <laughs> and when we say hot, we mean like boiling hot, they're room temperature qubits, they're coming into your house right now, you're gonna have quantum computer smartphone just kidding uh they're still only about uh 1.5 kelvin max <laughs> darn i was excited for a second <laughs> yeah but yeah. i mean it's still a 15 times increase over what we've previously had right you've had to hold things at the like one milli kelvin or lower for superconducting yeah. qubits and having 1.1 kelvin in one study and a 1.5 kelvin in another is a, a huge increase what what are your what were your first thoughts when you read about this yeah so i mean quantum computers and like qubits typically are like right above absolute zero and like that's extremely cold and when you think about it it's just not that feasible for scalability and when i heard about and read about hot qubits i was like this is great like yes it's 1.5 kelvin it's really cold still but it just means so much more for the field. Like for example, what a lot of quantum chips and these quantum properties have, they have to be combined with classical chips in order to run a full algorithm because the algorithm has both classical and quantum parts in it. But right. historically we've had to keep the classical chips like outside of the quantum chamber and like have like a whole room of wires and a bunch of things connecting them together because as you know, like in our phones, when we use a classical chip, it overheats, it gets really hot. And we couldn't keep that like anywhere near a quantum chip or it would like overheat and sure. would go into decoherence. So I just think this is such a big step in the field for scalability because you don't have to keep like these two chips in like opposite corners of the room. And like, I'm sure, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how it's set up, but it's like, you don't need to keep them so far apart and you can make them a lot more compact and it's a lot better to scale. And like, it's, for example, like how the computer started in like a huge room and it was like a bunch of giant like blocks of computer to create like one at the end of the day, one computer. And I just think this is like a kind of a step in that direction and like making quantum computers not that giant thing and a little bit smaller. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think that there are a lot of parallels between like com computing in the 1950s. Some people say earlier, some people say later. 
but that sort of era and what we've got in quantum computing right now. And I think a, a big thing to note with these hot qubits is like there are already practical business um, applications of having these hotter qubits in that to have the dilution refrigerator that cools things down with uh, HE3 and HE4 um, down to millikelvin requires like millions of dollars worth of investment in order to get all of that set up. Um, and while it's still a big investment, you can bring it down to tens of thousands or even just thousands of dollars in order to cool it down to 1.5 Kelvin range. Yeah, it's definitely a more realistic investment now and more of a realistic idea and more of a realistic technology. Yeah, for sure. And last thing I just want to mention really briefly is the quantum random number generator smartphone chip. So Samsung uh, is putting a quantum, you can actually get this already, I believe, um, in the quantum version of one of their phones. Uh, it's a quantum random number generator chip. And from what I can tell is it uses some quantum um, properties of light emitters to generate like true quantum numbers, which is cool because uh, theoretically, if you know the seed that different random uh, pseudo random number generator algorithms derive their seed from, you can you know reverse engineer and find out you know when you get that random that uh, recommended random password that you put in either from like KeyPass or LastPass or you know, just Firefox Lockwise into your browser. Um, if the people know what seed that was, they can figure out what the actual password is um, but like with this even if you know the exact time that it happened you can't reverse engineer that um, so that's pretty cool um, not really a big deal for quantum computing in general i guess anisha what's your take on that um i think if you like do quantum computing and you do quantum physics like you kind of know that this isn't that much of an actual improvement in the technology itself but i think it's an indicator of we're, that we're already creating like real world applications and we're already creating things that the public can use with quantum computing, which I think is really important, especially in keeping people engaged and giving them something more than just hype that's going to come in more than a, in a couple decades. Yeah, for sure. Um, awesome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I think this this first sort of trial run of going over the news and interviews with a different person on the show. I think I think it went really well. I'm glad you came on. Um, where can people find out more about you and what you're working on, especially with like community? Yeah. So first, I'm glad to be the guinea pig. And yeah, you can find me on my personal website, which is www.anishamusty.com. You can find my Medium page, my YouTube, and which is all my name. But you can also find me, you can find community at community.tech, no dash. And we mentioned it a little bit in the beginning, but we're an organization that spreads quantum computing to anyone, anywhere, regardless of experience. So I really got urge you to check that out. And you can read some of my articles too. And I use that Ant-Man GIF in a lot of my articles. So <laughs> Nice, nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right, so there weren't any questions for previous episodes. That's fine. If you've got questions, let me know on Twitter or with an Anchor voice message or my email. Um, but there actually was a correction for this episode. 
That is to say, actually this episode, um, turns out there were more Quantum Impact videos than I originally thought. Didn't see them as I was looking through for the video, but I found them when I was adding to them, adding their playlist to the show notes. It's my bad. Um, episode 1 does exist, and there is another episode, so it goes 0, 1, 2, 3. Um, you can find that all in the show notes in that playlist. Um, but other than that, I haven't gotten questions or corrections. Please, please send them to me. Um, like I said, Twitter at one Ethan Hansen anchor. Uh, there should be a option at the bottom to send me a voice message or email. Um, if you want to send me an email, you can send me it at one Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com. Um, and just either any of those, I'll answer all of them pretty quick and let me know what you thought of the new format. Um, I sent a Twitter poll out, and (laughs) democracy is the idea that the people deserve to get what they want, and they deserve to get it good and hard. And so, yeah, let me know if you liked this format, and I will continue doing it if I get some good feedback. So, as always, we have resources to everything we talked about in the show notes. If you want to learn more about TensorFlow Quantum, Quantum Impact, or AlphaZero for Quantum, or Hot Qubits, or Machine Learning, um, that's all in the show notes, and you can go and check that out. Um, If you want to check out Anisha's The Quantum Daily page, that's where a lot of the quantum machine learning stuff is. Um, She's written some good stuff over on thequantumdaily.com, and I recommend checking that out as well. As if as you're over there, um, while you're over there, sorry, you should also check out my page on the Quantum Daily. I run the the podcast, um, this podcast, and we put it on the Quantum Daily as well. Um, I'm partnered with thequantumdaily.com, uh, which aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I've linked to in the show notes. And if you want to support this podcast, you can support me on Anchor. There's a link in the show notes to support. Um, you can also send me LiberaPay. I'm working on getting that set up. If you want me to hurry that, let me know. Um, I'm also working, uh, I have IOTA set up. If you want to send me some IOTA, I will give you an address for that. And make sure you leave a review wherever you get podcasts. Uh, share this with everyone. It really helps me out. If you add comments on the Quantum Daily, I get those and I can respond to you. Um, and yeah, that's what I've got for you today. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it. <laughs>